Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Bob and Chuck talking about how to reduce the overdose death rate in millennials. And this is episode three. There was somebody who died of, of what we're talking about a few months ago who was not a millennial. He was a baby boomer, one of my favorite musicians, Prince, and the autopsy just came out. And he died of extremely uh, uh, fentanyl toxicity, i.e. a drug overdose from the extremely potent type of painkiller. And I was just reading this. Typically, fentanyl is administered to heart, for heart surgeries and late-stage cancer victims with an immediate burst of extreme opioid effect. This is one of the most powerful drugs in the world, and is, it is described as carrying 100 times the potency of morphine hmm. and 50 times the potency of pure heroin. Oh my goodness. Now, what the article doesn't go into, this is a New York Times article about the, about the, um, about the, about the Prince Overdose, so sad. But, but what they didn't go into is that the most heroin on both coasts now, both on uh, in the eastern seaboard and and in uh, the California coast, the heroin is has fentanyl in it, because you can you can buy fentanyl very cheaply. It's being produced in China. It's selling for five dollars a pill. I met a kid a couple months ago who had been in treatment with me, I was his counselor, and then he had gone, he had left and returned to using, and he OD'd and wasn't breathing, and luckily was resuscitated um, from taking two fentanyl pills, right? From and two. I said, two. So I said, why, why would you take two if you don't know how strong they are? And he goes, well, they only cost five bucks, and I just figured, how high can you get for five bucks? No, that figures, I got, that I got makes ten, sense. Ten, ten bucks. God, and he didn't even expect that he was going to get high. And he stopped breathing from taking two pills. That's pretty high. That's fucking crazy. That's pretty high. So what I want parents to know, I don't know who's going to listen to this or whatever, but what I want parents to know is your kids aren't taking the heroin that Perry Farrell and the 80s people <laughs> this took. This isn't your parents' heroin. This isn't heroin. your parents' heroin anymore. God. This is That's Chinese fentanyl-laced heroin that when you, and, and, you know, and never before have people been going in and out of treatment so much. I feel like I was a trailblazer of that. Me and Martin Lenoble, between the two of us, we went to 60 treatments. He went to 30 six and i went to 24 between me and one other person we went to drug treatment 60 times it's right ridiculous in the 80s and 90s and the and the funny thing is you know nobody was doing that that was like crazy they everybody thought we were crazy all our using buddies thought we were crazy and all the rehab buddies thought we were crazy but we would just go for a month and then go use for a few months and then go back to treatment we just both kind of got in this pattern. And the reason why I went after about the fourth or fifth or sixth time was to clean my body out. I remember mm -hmm. that was the main priority is like, I'm too strung out. I can't even fucking get high anymore. I'll go back to rehab. Right. If you can't go do the Keith Richards complete blood. I did that. Transfusion. Did you I really? Did it. Good for you. Well, they raise, how they do it is they take the blood out of you. They do it through your groin area. Mm. It's pretty fascinating. You want to know about it? Yeah. So they take your blood out of your body. They use it for many different 
uh, treatments. It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think he was doing it for that reason. What they do is they take the blood out of your system, they put it through a, and raise the temperature of it so that they kill the hepatitis C they virus. They homogenize it. They, no, mm. they, they, viruses can't live. So it was a thing in Switzerland where they thought they can get rid of hepatitis C, they can get rid of HIV and AIDS by killing the virus in the blood and it just circulates back through, right? I think that's what he got. Okay. Right. And there's all kinds of new things going on. Stem cells. I had stem cells a couple months ago. I felt great for like two months and I felt back to my old pathetic self that I'm at <laughs> now. <laughs> I've had ozone therapy, vitamin drips, NAD, all that shit. It's all this, you know, it's something, hmm. it's something to do, but, but there's nothing of, uh, uh there's no way to get sober, but did to it, get did sober. Did it bring down your tolerance? Well, when I would go to treatment, then I would return, like, I liked shooting drugs. I'm not going to, you know, say I didn't. I enjoyed the rush of shooting drugs. But every time I re returned back to active use, I only smoked it. I know that sounds crazy. And I brought this up 10 years ago. And Dr. Drew said, I don't think people are ready to hear that. And I was like, why? I was the trailblazer of returning back to use. I returned back to use after post-treatment 24 times. If you're going to listen to anybody about how to not die returning back to active use, you should listen to me. And the <laughs> fact is, I love shooting heroin. I knew it was going to take a few days or a week or something, and I would get back into shooting heroin. But initially, I had to smoke it because you don't die from smoking it. You know, but basically back then you no, didn't. No, it's I, apparently, no, you can die from even smoking can. it. Yeah. It's crazy. So... I'd be, well, what we do know is if I were a millennial, I'd be dead already. Absolutely. Me too. And, and cause Prince was like taking a, a page out of the Michael Jackson playbook. That guy did drugs on a level. I mean, having your own doctor there and having him put you to sleep and wake you up and bring you down. Oh yeah. Doctor. Like what was that guy's name? Doctor, uh, I don't know. Not Kevorkian. What was that guy's no. name? <laughs> no, no. but uh, Conrad Murray. Conrad Murray. Dr. Conrad Murray. That, that, that was use on a whole new level for me. I couldn't believe that. Now, have you Prince, ever have you ever done that propofol? No. Okay. Yeah, I have before surgery. Yeah, it's a good feeling. Oh, I I like that swimming for a few. And minutes. it's non-addictive. Oh, it's just emotionally addictive, like cocaine. Oh, so we could do some. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm getting a teeth implants. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> but do it every night. It would become old hat, wouldn't it? I don't know. But obviously for Michael Jackson, it didn't. But, but what, um, what I think is interesting about the two icons of music that I, that, you know, I love Michael Jackson off the wall, right? I was a DJ back then. I used to play off the wall. Can when we say Billie when Billie Jean black? came out, I guarantee you, I DJed at the Cafe de Grand, the punk rock mecca of Los Angeles in the upstairs DJ area. I DJed five nights a week there. And all the cool hipster dreadlocked punk rockers and social D chain wallet dudes, you put on some Michael Jackson, Billy Jean, or you gotta be starting something, you got to be starting something, and drunk punk rockers would dance to that shit. That's without a true. Reali without realizing it. Yeah, they yeah. would because it's about the beat. You gotta be starting something. But so what's interesting is probably two people equal to the to the Beatles and Rolling Stones of, of a prior generation, Michael Jackson and Prince both died of prescription drugs. That's telling of what's going on in a culture to me. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, and by far I think Prince is more talented than Michael Jackson. I'll just say that. There's nobody, nobody but Bowie made that good of music for that long. I mean, when when you start with "I Want to Be Your Lover," controversy. Um, mm-hmm. Ronnie talked to Russia. Ronnie talked to Russia before it's too late. Before he blows up the world, right? Okay. Before they blow. Yeah. You ever heard that yeah. Ronnie talked to Russia by Prince? Yes, that's. It's on controversy, yes. I think. So it's from the bikini and record, then, right? And then he explodes with Purple Rain, and and you know Raspberry Beret I didn't really like. But you know what's interesting? Every time I think about Raspberry Beret, Pat Smear from the Germs. The guitar player of the Germs is in the video of Raspberry Beret standing right next to Prince, clapping his hands. No, it's swear to I've God. I've seen that hundred times. Pat Smear, it's Pat Smear from now. He's in Foo Fighters, but, but where then, he's wearing the cloud outfit. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. Raspberry Beret and Pat Smear is clapping along. Raspberry Beret. It's Pat Smear from the Germs in that video. That's so funny. badass. But so then he does that little pop thing, but then he made that song Sign of the Times. That was the most amazing song. And it talks about people dying. dying. What, are you, what are you doing, Mike? That doesn't help. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is his thing? What are you oh. doing? Oh, I, oh, sealed. No meds in home were prescribed to him. Oh, Mike brought us in a CNN breaking news. So, mm. so Prince. Prince didn't, um, none of the prescriptions were in his name. They right. were in friends of his name and well, all that. Well, I heard bodyguards so that he wouldn't be seen going in and out of the pharmacy. But yeah, it's, it's just sad. And so here's well, my what, message to... What would you get to, fentanyl for? You get, it's sad. I read it. You get it for terminal cancer and heart surgery. Right? I didn't hear you. Oh, here's the guy, the, the naltrexone implant guy just texted me. Oh, I love this idea. Just to follow up again, would still love to connect for one more day. So I met, I was at one of Elvis's friends' birthday parties and this guy comes up to me and is talking to me and he goes, uh, he goes, you know, I, I, I work kind of in your industry. And I was like, oh, really? What do you do? And I thought he had a rehab or something. And he said, I have a company that does now checks on implants. And I was like, oh my God, I want to get them for like 30 kids I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk to him. I really I'd like would. to talk to him. I'd really like to hear his, his take yeah, on things. Yeah, and the idea is, here's the thing that's a life-saving kind of thing, I think, both the meloxone that you're talking about to resuscitate people, but now on implants are available. We have the technology, people, to, to keep people from overdose death, but it's very costly, and insurance doesn't cover it. So thousands of kids are going to die, until the insurance industry and the bullshit big pharma can figure out how to get this covered and 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 done by your insurance because the cost is so high. Well, now, that's a very strange. The, the injections are. Were, this is why I'd like to talk to him. Is back when I was doing that, the thirty-day injections were extremely effective. Uh, they keep. They have a higher affinity for the opiate receptors, so they keep you from being able to get high. And they they diminish well, the, the urges. The pro, I see. I don't know that it diminishes urges. It does according to but, the people I know that had it done. All I know is my experience with it. I don't know what. But the, they say that you, people lie all the time. Why would you listen to drug addicts? The fact is, <laughs> the fact is, if you know you can't get high, you're going to focus your mind on more productive things, mm-hmm. right? That's why when what we have created in the recovery industry is a bunch of millennials sitting around doing nothing 
for months and months on end so we can build their insurance, right? Instead of being out in the mix of life, in the stream of the river of life, getting jobs, going to school, being productive, and figuring out how to have evening outpatient programs so that they can go to school and go to work, or figuring out flexible schedules for counseling sessions. We have built machines all across America, mostly in California and Florida, that have to have the pupil, the student, the patient sitting in the chair, the client, so that we can give them the same old mediocre groups that they've already been to 20 times and just simply so that we can build the insurance industry. And I don't blame the recovery industry. I'm a recovery industry professional, have been for 20 years. It's not our fault. Insurance dictates care. Insurance dictates care. And insurance is the one who insists on this quantifiable evidence base. You have to have a recovery education group, a relapse prevention group. You have to have a 12-step kind of uh, processing group. You have to have a feelings group. They're the ones that dictate treatment, not us. Because if I was in charge, they'd be getting fucking jobs or volunteering at a community-based volunteer program. Mm -hmm. They'd be out taking the bus, doing what they're supposed to be doing in, in small groups with supervision until they could prove to me or to the hitting their goals that they were responsible enough, dedicated to sobriety enough that they could take the bus themselves and go to work and be on their own. And the goal should be uh, uh, sober autonomy. The goal is not sober autonomy of rehabs. The goal is education, fulfilling the responsibilities in the chart to the insurance company, getting coverage, getting authorization. So much of the focus of drug treatment is the bureaucracy of how to get paid for it, that drug treatment has become mediocre. And it wasn't that way when I was going because you paid cash and the rehab center decided what they thought was good for you. And at several rehabs, cry help, Hazelden, Minnesota, um, this one in Richmond, Virginia, I was on workout. So I lived in a sober, I had completed 30 days inpatient. I had completed two weeks of outpatient. Now I was on workout. Go find a fucking job. Then say, then you make your schedule of when you work and your the, they would fit the treatment around my schedule. And, and most of the times mm -hmm. I got day labor jobs. You know, when I was at Cry Help in 95, I worked at the Burbank airport at some fucking, oh, it was like hell on earth. But, you know, loading boxes and at a, at a low, you know, one of those docks, right? And I had to be there at 8 a.m. I'd leave Cry Help at like 6.45, walk to Burbank airport, work all day, go back to the rehab, have dinner, take a shower and go to a meeting, mm -hmm. then have to be back, lights <clears throat> out at 11. Right. No rehabs do that anymore. No, no, that was Cooper. That was exactly Cooper Fellowship when I went in. You actually had two weeks to land. You go to a detox that was, <clears throat> excuse me, Stanton Detox. And then you go to Cooper and you had two weeks where you either worked in the kitchen or in the yard. And then you had 30 days to find a job and you didn't have a chaperone. You had 30 days to find a job after that two weeks. If you didn't have a job and you couldn't start paying rent, you were out. Well, Cry Help had a buddy system where you had to go with somebody that was level three because they had levels, right? Right. So like, and I remember, and they also took you to vocational rehab. You ever heard of that? I don't know. They it took was, us to EDD. Yeah. <laughs> well, vocational rehab was this thing in Burbank near Cry Help, and you walked there, and you 
they taught you how to do job resume or they, they assessed you as to what possibilities and jobs were in the area and it was all temp oriented. And they gave you, I remember I got a Sears clothing voucher to go buy two pairs of dungarees, the guy called them, Ooh, dungarees. dungarees. That would be jeans for all you kids <laughs> at home. Dungarees and work shirts dungarees. and boots. And they gave you like a $200 clothing voucher at Sears. So nice. I had work boots and I had dungarees and I had, you know, the little Dickies shirts, right? Wranglers. And I was ready to go work on a loading dock. And that was crucial to me to learn that I got nothing coming and sitting around talking about your belly button isn't going to fucking help you. And now that's all drug treatment is. Sit around, talk about your feelings, talk about your diagnoses, poor, poor thing, poor, you make poor decisions, poor thing, rather than how do you become a productive member of society? One little tiny step at a time. You know, and <clears throat> I have to say this because I have a lot of friends that work in the industry too, like you do. And, you know, if you're wondering if Bob's picking on you, you know what's happening at your treatment facility. If you're, <laughs> if you're trained more in how to keep someone in treatment so they don't go ACA or how to, uh, if you're worried more about losing a client than you are about their well-being, then you're working in a bad place. You know whether your place is making a difference or not. And you don't need to, you don't need to defend the work you're doing if you're doing good work. Uh, we've, I've been able to go in places and, uh, you know, there's been amazing... Uh, there's been great places and there have been really, really horrible places. You know where you're know working. That, I don't know. See that. I don't know that there's horrible places. I think that people that work with drug addicts are, are usually well-intentioned people. So the rehab, the owner, owner operators, the, the management, the administrative part of a rehab might be corrupt and be all money focused. But I'm pretty sure that the techs and the line staff and the counselors are pretty much the same everywhere you go. Oh, yeah, it's right? like a veterinary hospital. People who work in veterinary hospitals care love about animals. animals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can't get paid enough to work with these people. <laughs> yeah, you, you know that. And that so I always think, you know, line, I always have faith in the line staff of every rehab, whether it's a corrupt one in Florida or Malibu or whatever or not, that the people that work there, you know, are probably doing the right thing by the patients. But but I'm talking in general whether they're good or bad rehabs, according to what you're saying, the whole system does not help drug addicts. It does not help you become personally responsible. It does not help you to understand that, yeah, you got problems and you've got trauma and so does everybody else and you're gonna have to figure out how to sort through that and, and to get rid of the victim mentality. Mm. Rehab encourages victim mentality and I just refuse. Like I, I always just treat the clients the same as I treat the staff and the same as I want to be treated myself. Like we're all fucked up human beings. It's the existential problem of, of existence, right? Mm. The fact is I know how to have a job and not use and be an all right citizen and try to kind of, you know, be bored and, and be depressed and not use drugs. That's the thing that I have a value to help other people understand. You can be depressed. You don't have to use you, every life is ups and downs. It's not that big of a deal. Right. But, but yeah. this idea that everybody's a victim and it's, unless they get rid of their mental illness or their immorality or their unethicalness or whatever, you're always going to return to active use. No, you're going to return to active use until you're done returning back to active use. And then you're going to sort through all the rest of the bullshit just like everybody else. 
right? Right. But right. in the meantime, can't we teach people that you're responsible for you? Wouldn't it be great? Would it be more likely that you would want to stay sober if you had a job with a future and optimism and you were headed towards having your own apartment or getting a, your own transportation or being, having, having achieved something in life? And I think that's lost now in drug treatment. I think it's all, it's all kind of laid out the way that it's laid out by the insurance industry. And, um, and there's not much we can do about it. We just try to do the best we can. I always say, you know, you're going to be, um, you're going to be out on your own in a, in a couple weeks, a month, who knows, but you're going to be out on your own. And you think this place cares about where you go or what you do, you're fucking sorely mistaken. Cause there'll be another 30 people in here with their 30 insurances and the focus will be on them. And so, hmm. you know, you take advantage of a situation. You've been blessed with a gift of having a safe place to go, to get medically stable, to go through withdrawals, to not return to use, to not give in. You've processed through that. You're starting to feel healthier. You're eating better. You're getting your vitality back. You're getting a little education. You're getting a little, your wits about you again. That's what drug treatment gives you. It's not hmm. paid caring. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's this idea that everybody cares about you. Like, dude, yeah, you care about people, but then they're on their way. I got, you know, if I kept track of everybody I've ever cared about, it'd be like a million people. Yeah, but you do because you work in the business. So you do care a little bit whether you got paid for it or not. You like the people. You, you can relate to them. We're just at different spots on the continuum. I was them. They can be where I am, where I haven't used for a while. No, but what I'm saying is, is over caring. I, I'm not saying that... that people don't care. I'm saying this idea that people, you're so precious like a snowflake. No, you're not. I'm only impressed by people that achieve things. I'm not impressed by people who simply exist. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I know. And the world need, and the world is like that. Just nobody says it. You know what I mean? Why is Keith Richards, why is that somebody I think is, uh, you know, a much to be respected person? Because of what he's achieved. Right? Uh, some guy that's never made a record, never written a song that plays guitar. I, I have different feelings about his value in relation to <laughs> achievement, right? Now he may be a great surgeon. Here's, here's an interesting thing. I have two friends that are frustrated musicians that are lawyers in New York city and they have a band, right? It's called fuckhead oh, and good. Mike's good a keyboard player and Larry's the guitar player singer. And I always go and play with them. They have gigs. They play at a bar in the village and stuff. And I go play with them. They're really good lawyers and not that good of musicians. <laughs> but they have fun. Mm -hmm. right. You know what I mean? And we play Clash songs and we play, you know, Lou Reed songs and stuff like that. They're different than Keith Richards and Jimmy Page. Would you not say that? They're different. Yes. They're both musicians. They both play music. These two categories of people, Jimmy Page and Keith Richards, Mike and Larry. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the reverse, I would not go to Keith Richards or Jimmy Page to ask for legal advice about, <laughs> about Mike's a music publishing lawyer. I mm -hmm. go to him about music publishing. Larry's a real estate lawyer. I go to him about real estate law. I would go to neither Jimmy Page or Keith Richards about any kind of law. Right? right? Why is achievement not the focus of our society? That we're everybody's a snowflake and everybody's equally important just because you were born. Just because you're in fucking front of me. 
It's not true. And the society is not focused like that. Right? Absolutely. And so when are you, when when do we tell young people, yeah, it's pretty harsh. Our society, our capitalist society we live in is based on achievement. It's not based on just because you were born. That when do we start telling 15, 16, 17, 19 year olds that? Well, don't don't we tell them that with I don't think we tell them that. I think they just are pushed out into it and they they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I think we do with with how well they do in school and how they behave uh, around and things they get better at, things they excel at, pointing out the fact that they're good at some things and not so good at others and focusing on their strengths. If you're not doing that as a parent, then you've kind of failed. Well, but 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 there's there's there is a little gray area of that. Right. And I, I went through this with my older son. So he hung out with a lot of uber wealthy people, kids. Right. OK. And at a certain point. He was not doing well in school. And I said, dude, what, what do you think? How does this play out? Do you, because I know what's going to happen to your girlfriend and the rest of them. They're going to, they're, they're, they're multi-generational wealth. They're just going to live off their parents. I don't have any wealth. I don't have any money. You don't have <laughs> yeah. anything to live off of. You need a plan. You need a fucking plan, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because everything's all well and good now. You guys are 16 and you're going to have fun and blah, blah, blah. And you're all, I'm, I'm glad that you have a lot of friends and abundance of friends and cool kids that you hang out with. But you should really have a discerning eye as to what their future holds and what your future holds. Right? Good point. And, and people, I, you know, people don't tell their kids that. Like, listen... This, this society is harsh. This society is, if you're not fucking spot on and working hard and disciplined about things, you're going to be fucked. You're going to be washed under, right? Right. If you come from working class background. Right. No, but that's one of those the things I found when I went back into the, because see, I didn't work from ages, what, 19 to 30. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was doing my retirement in the, in the, in the drug world and the, Upon re-entering the, the job force, all I had to do was show up every day, and I was one of the most valuable employees. Just by showing up <laughs> or calling when I'm not going to be there because those skills had gone out the window. I don't know if my parents taught me that or if it was something I saw or if it's something that's just innate in me that, you know, if you're going to be somewhere, if you say you're going to be somewhere, you show up. And if you're not going to be at work, you at least call. But get to work. doesn't matter. You're philosophical about it. I worked because I liked money. Right. I worked I, in my junior and senior year of high school. I worked many jobs in Huntington. I worked at Postal Instant Press on Beach Boulevard, cleaning the ink machines after when they used to Pip. print out shit. Pip. Pip. Right. I worked at Pip. I worked at a bank cleaning company where in the, either late at night or early in the morning, I would go in and vacuum and clean the banks clean and wash thing. everything and <laughs> dump all the trash. Yeah. I worked at Licorice Pizza on Warner and Golden West. Ooh. I worked at a pizza parlor across behind the Wendy's there in the strip mall there, mm -hmm. delivering pizzas, making pizzas, because I liked money to buy Coke with. You know what I mean? I buy, yeah, yeah. I'd get like, I don't know, back then you made like $4 an hour. I'd get like a $170 paycheck and I'd buy $80 gram of Coke. And like it would wow, last, paid way it would last me, it would last me like two days. <laughs> Oh, no, Later on, it would last you. me like an oh, hour. Yeah, but Aww. it was so cool. Little, you know, take little spoonfuls <laughs> of Coke and sniff it. Aww. Oh, it was so cool. Little bits. But I, I remember, I knew that work leads to money, leads to doing what you fucking want to do. And so I don't know 
how to instill that in my children. You stop giving them stuff. Well, but the society has a contributing factor to it, right? The society, like, I remember most of the time we just made our own fun, right? Absolutely. Meaning, Absolutely. meaning, I lived in Palm Desert. We rode our bicycles everywhere. We went fishing in the lakes at the golf courses and caught fish, and and we we'd hit golf ball. We'd swim the, in the lakes and pick up the golf balls off the bottom, and then hit them out in the desert. We'd catch rattlesnakes inside and uh, and and scorpions and put them in a fish tank together and watch them fight. Oh, it was wonderful. like a rural, you know, Tom Sawyer, well, that's you know, kind well, of we desert did life. But different stuff. So. Yeah. There was never a cost of having Bobby when he was 10 or 12 or 14. It was just like, there's the desert. There's your bike. Fucking go. Yeah, occasional right? YouTube is all it costs. My Nowadays, with Elvis, like, you know, they have birthday parties at Disneyland where you're supposed to pay your kids like Disneyland thing. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. what the fuck? Or, or you know, let's yeah. go to Disney on ice. It's like fucking $100. Right? Right. I can't remember ever doing something like that with, when I was a kid. I think we went to Disneyland one time and they had those little things and my mom bought one booklet and only two good rides or one good and ride and then you had still? shitty rides. Yeah, the e-tickets. Yeah. And then in the end, you just had these shitty tickets that all you could do is ride on the train that goes around Disneyland. <laughs> and how about this? I was probably... 73 i was probably 11 11 or 12 my mom just let us go me and two other kids from our neighborhood we just ran around disneyland 11 years old 12 years old doing whatever the fuck we wanted all day you think that happens anymore uh judging from the behavior of the kids i'd say yeah but i doubt it i bet their parents are somewhere no the parents are running around there with them and overseeing and helicoptering yeah so so you know the point being that i think that Young people need to be introduced to the idea that the world is harsh and the world is, you know, it's beautiful. Joe Strummer used to always say when he ended the Mascalera sets, it's a sad and beautiful world. Good night. It's a sad and beautiful world. When do we tell kids that? It's not just a beautiful world. You're not the only snowflake in the fucking sky. You know what I mean? when do we tell them that because i'm the one that has to tell them that when they're like 22 in drug treatment you know what i mean uh, that's that's bigger i don't know well that's I, a big question for all us parents to ask ourselves when do you introduce reality into your young adult children or do you not live in reality i think a lot of parents don't live in reality either that's true that's true. When we when we had the the uh, naloxone naltrexone guys in and the, or the ladies and they were talking about how how many lives could be saved and all we have to do is get these into the hands of the people that are using and the the communities that wouldn't allow them to come in and talk whether it's at the school or at the community event centers yeah because they're just they're turning a blind eye to it and I don't know I think kind of once you've once you've gotten past Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy, it's time to start introducing your kids to the world so that when they get out there, it's not a shock. You know, it's like you see it on spring breaks. You see the kids that were never allowed to go anywhere or do anything. You see them on the TV acting like asses. Whereas, yeah. you know, the kids that have lived a little, been to some shows. I taught my kids, my older kids, how to act in clubs to go see music. 
I was taking them to go see music when they were, they were young. They knew how to behave. They knew how to talk to the bouncers. They knew how to, they knew how to get along and they learned how to speak to adults like that. And nowadays, and you're saying that's not a majority of the parenting going no, on. No way. Remember chain reaction? Yes. I used to drop Elijah off there and just sit in the parking lot. And then Frank Agnew is Rick Agnew's brother. Yes. He's a guitar player in adolescence, right? Um, was no. Frank Agnew in the yeah. adolescence? Yeah, they. I think both Rick and at Frank one point were, were in the adolescence. Yeah. So Frank's son played music, and me and uh, Elijah and Frank's son had a band together for a while, and I we both were watching them at the Chain Reaction. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. That place still exists. It's still there. I, I believe. I believe it oh is. Oh my god! It's the only place where like twelve-year-olds can smoke cigarettes. It was so fun. Uh, but I, yeah, I used to park way near the street mm -hmm. and just like wait there for two or three or four hours until Elijah was done having fun with his friends. Yeah, it was, it was nuts. That place was like full of, it was like But the that's mall, how but young people re re learned how to be a social, socially in, in their own world. Oh, it was good. Right? You didn't see kids in there on their phones. They were there to see music and to learn how to, to dance and to get along and then talk to each other one-on-one. -on -one. They weren't, kids weren't on I want to go to Chain Reaction and see if the kids are glued to their phones now. Yeah, I remember when, the, when Elijah was like 12, so that was 18 years ago. Oh, they, God, that club's been around they, forever. They brought, they brought in real bands, too. Yeah, there was real bands. Remember Hot Rod Todd? What was his band called? I don't know. That was, that was Elijah's favorite band, Hot Rod Todd. I don't know. I tried to avoid that place because it was so full of kids. It just wasn't, I was like the creepy older guy. Yeah, there. you can't That's go in there. <laughs> <laughs> only I only went in one time when Elijah's band was playing. I didn't uh, hang out there. Chuck, no, were you was, hanging out I there? I was done. Yeah, I, I, I was like, I was like, man, I'm that creepy old guy now. I'm out. <laughs> They're all like 13 years old. Oh my god. Yeah, no, that. So that yeah, to learn how to get along with other people. There was another later club when he was about 16 up here in LA called The Smell. And I would drop them off down I mean, there. The smell, the still, smell. The smell still exists, right? Yeah, it was a no alcohol, but kids smuggled alcohol in there. And that I remember talking very directly with him at 14, 15, 16, just about drugs. I knew he was smoking weed and drinking and maybe doing snorting crystal meth. And I just, I just, I didn't want to know for one thing. I just kept emphasizing you have to do well in school you have to live up to your responsibilities you got to be cool then when that stuff started to fall off i refuse to say it's because of drugs i i just i'm a differently wired person i think that that you can use drug use as an excuse for being irresponsible hmm. but responsibility is the key right so as long as you can take care of your own shit and take care of yourself, I don't think parents have the right to, to interfere in their children's lives. As long as you're living up to your responsibilities. I tell Elvis, your job is to go to school and do well and mm -hmm. to treat all the adults with respect. That's your job. My job is to get in my fucking car and drive to Temecula. You want to switch jobs? That's what I tell him. <laughs> I want to, you know I drive to Temecula every day. Right. Yeah. It's a fucking nightmare. Can I just say that? There's no place around here. <laughs> My God, open one. <laughs> no, they don't allow rehabs in Claremont. <laughs> they have a community <laughs> band. That's a wonderful mountain village. You can't have one? No, you cannot have a rehab. There are no rehabs around here. That's crazy. It'd be a perfect spot. There's, there's group homes. There's group homes, but not rehabs. What is that place down there on the road? 
it's a it's a kids adolescent locked unit and all kinds of oh. kid the uh, yeah what is it whatever it's called um the the hope is Chrissy gets her master's in June or something to work there she could walk to work and then she could get you a yeah job. And then I can retire there you go there you go you gotta have an overall game plan kids I plan I like on it. work until I'm 60. So, I mean, in this context of really working hard and trying to get shit going on until I'm 60. Then at 60, I'm going to take a back seat to my significant other taking over the responsibilities and the reins of That's industry. Great. That's right? great. Because we're both counselors. Isn't that crazy? Maybe I should write you a hit song. <laughs> no. so, so you I'm can going relax. back to music. That's another part of why Mike's here. We're going to make a record. We've got to come up with the name of a band, though. Band names are hard. I remember I didn't want Thelonious Monster. I was outvoted four to one. <laughs> I wanted Thelonious Monster to be called to be called the FTW Experience. Okay. I, right? Because well, John Doe had the yeah. FTW yeah. tattoo. And I got outvoted four to one. And I never really liked Thelonious Monster. I thought it was kind of a jokey name. Right? I think if we but the FTW experience is kind of a jokey name. Yeah, it's kind of a rip off on Hendrix, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And the fuck the world experience. You're right, but I thought that on. was a great name for a punk rock band. But then we weren't punk rock, and then we were called Thelonious Monster, and it was kind of a joke name, right? No. Remember the funniest time we went on tour right when indie rock started taking off, and it was going to be this getting together of Camper Van Beethoven and Thelonious Monster because we both had albums that were kind of popular. They college, had that college radio, yeah, song, they, yeah, and they had the song "Everything Seems to Be Up in the Air at This Time." The Ambiguity song, it was called. And then we had Sammy Hager Weekend, so we went on tour together thinking, well, if we join forces, maybe people will come. And they didn't. <laughs> but Surprise. And it, we had suffered through this whole, like, Seattle, Washington, Vancouver, weird. And we played Davis, where they were from, and that show went good. We played Sacramento, that went good. Then we come to San Francisco, and we kind of can't wait to get to San Francisco because we're both kind of popular there, right? But we were playing the new, bigger, like, theater that really wasn't like the clubs we had played, right? So that we pull up. We mm. both got Winnebago's, and we pull up. And David Lowry's standing in front, and he goes, look at the marquee. And it said, uh, Camping with Beethoven and the Loneliest Monster. <laughs> they, Bill Graham Productions had gotten both <laughs> names wrong on the theater marquee. I never forget it. Camping with Beethoven and the loneliest monster. You know, some old Bill Graham hippie dude was put in charge of putting the band names on the marquee. The loneliest loneliest monster and camping with Beethoven. (laughs) The loneliest monster is a great name for a children's book. (laughs) It's funny. So, you know, know, and why were all of us in those vans doing that shit? Because we wanted to get out there and live life and meet girls and go do things and write songs and fucking see America that was a big thing see america that was a big part of the indie rock movement of the mid 80s like you were gonna go to nebraska where johnny carson is from like nebraska i remember we played the drumstick in nebraska and i was like this is nebraska this is fucking rad right just going everywhere i went to every (laughs) town in america over a 10-year period of time 
And I wanted to. I wanted to meet weird people and go to Maryland, I remember. We, by the time we like had a tour bus, we were in Maryland, and I was singing. I was all drunk, and I walked into the truck stop, and I was all singing, and I was buying a bunch of crap, like cookies and sugar and whatever. And I come up, and the guy, we're all standing around there, like six of us, and then I, I, I put the stuff down to buy it from this old guy, and he goes, what'd you do with the money your mama gave you? And I was like, I couldn't understand what he was saying because it had an East Coast accent. And I was like, I was like, I just want this stuff. And he's like, what'd you do with the money your mama gave you? And I was like, what? Uh, I don't understand what you're saying. He goes, what did you do with the money your mama gave you for singing lessons? Because you certainly didn't take them. And yeah. I was like, and everybody cracked up. I go, dude, I'm the singer of a band. <laughs> how, and how do you know that? <laughs> how do you know that? That was funny. So... <laughs> I'm telling you, we got to get our young people inspired to go see America, to get in a fucking car and go, like Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy. You got to get kids to understand that, yeah, you're special and important, but not to anybody else but yourself, really, <laughs> and the co couple of close people that care about you, right? Yeah. And, and that, you know, everybody can't be special. Otherwise, it's not special. There's that specialness. <laughs> right. Right? Specialness is about achievement. And, and, um, and so we have to like, think about how we're going to parent next time. I'm doing it right now. I just treat Elvis exactly like my dad treated me. Get your fucking clothes on. What the wrong, what the hell's wrong God, with you? That's scary. When you do that, I, I my back straightens. See, up. you're, you're, you're a feather, Chuck. <laughs> you are a nurturing, no, loving it's like feather. like a kid again. It worked. <laughs> it worked. Get your goddamn <laughs> clothes on and let's go. God dang. <laughs> loud you don't get that loud how do you do that <laughs> because i'm being my dad and oh i turned God. out all right all right till next time see you later kids hey this is bob and you can get a hold of aloe treatment centers at 888-595-0235 that's aloe treatment centers in malibu and silver lake 888-595-0235. Tell him Bob told you the call.